Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. Let us help you escape your mind. is Mind Escape. We have episode number 225 today. Uh, we're going to be discussing psychedelics and philosophy. We are joined by our guest, Sam Wolf. Uh, Sam is a journalist and a blogger, and uh, we'll get into that in a second. Before we get started, if you want to head on over to his website, I have the link down below the video. It has all of his articles and anything he's done on there, so go check that out. Uh, also, if you're interested, head on over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast for just $2 a month. You'll get exclusive guest episodes and segments. Um, we're also on Discord. Um, there's a ton of stuff up on uh, Patreon, even though we took a month and a half hiatus from live episodes. I've been posting episodes once a week, and there's a bunch of new uh, Patreons on there, so go check that out. Um, and, uh, thank you to all of our Patreon members. We love you and we appreciate it. And, uh, I know that last month and a half since we weren't doing live shows, uh, got a little uh, thin there, but we'll, we'll get it going again here now. Uh, and one more thing, head on over to indrasweb.org. This is a social media platform we created to connect open minds. So if you want to hypothesize, theorize, speculate on all the topics we discuss, it's the perfect place to do it. Go set up an account. Still working on trying to get that in the app store. And then we we have a winner of our t-shirt contest. Uh, the winner is Cole. Congratulations, Cole. Uh, and uh, honorable mention, Abner. Uh, we had a few other people that submitted, but we still have two shirts left. I think we have a medium and a large. So if anybody's interested, we're going to do the, the contest again. So all you have to do is go to uh, Apple Podcasts, go to Mindscape. I have the link down below. Uh, leave us a five-star review. Um, and... Uh, Take a screenshot of it, send it to mindescapepodcast at gmail.com, and I will enter you to win. Again, there is a medium and a large left if anybody's interested in uh, submitting that. So, uh, But uh, I just want to say thank you to everybody. Uh, I, we did have our son um, about a month ago. He's a beautiful baby, and uh, yeah. That, that's why we were on a little bit of a hiatus from doing live shows, but I appreciate all the support and the nice messages from everybody and everything. So we love everybody and we're glad to be back and shout out to my amazing, beautiful wife, Amanda, who's taking care of him right now while I do this podcast. So thank if you. If you hear much. a little crying, uh, just <laughs> back here. yeah, he should be okay. Um, but welcome on the show, Sam. I know, uh, I've been following your stuff for a little bit and, uh, I appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me on. I think I was first introduced to your stuff like three or four years ago. You wrote an article about uh, DMT jesters or entities, mm. and I kind of referenced it in uh, one of our episodes, and I think Maurice made a clip of it. Uh, but yeah, I was just... Um, at the time, I, I thought it was interesting because everybody was like going to the most woo woo they could go to with the whole experience of that and i thought you had a more reasonable take not that you'd said that those things weren't possible but just that it doesn't really matter because you're having the experience and it's it's there it's real to the person having it so why don't you talk a little bit about that actually before you know mm. before we get into some of the other aspects of like i said we we're going to talk about foods of the god food of the gods and stuff like that so sure and uh Thank you. I appreciate the words uh, about my article. That's a, that's a nice compliment. Um, so yeah, I wrote the DMT Jester article because these particular type of entities, they seem to be really common 
in DMT experiences, like they keep cropping up. Like I've, I've seen them a lot and other people have seen them a lot and they just keep getting reported on. And they're kind of really strange entities. They're like, you know, even Rick Strassman, a lot of his participants reported seeing them, jesters, clowns, uh, these types of beings. And I was kind of wondering, okay, what, what are they? Like, what, what actually are they? Like, what do they mean? Where do they come from? And I mean, there's so many different avenues you can go towards like analyzing not only DMT jesters, but any DMT entity or any psychedelic entity in general. Mm. Um, but I've always been interested in psychology and evolutionary theory. So I was interested in those particular angles on these entities. So I think it's actually quite easy to look at the DMT jesters from the Jungian perspective. Um, they would fall under the broad category of trickster, the trickster archetype. And this is a reoccurring image or theme that you see in cultures and mythologies, you know, all around the world, the, the trickster. You see it in uh, Inuit mythology as, as Raven, the trickster god, creator. You see it in South African mythology as Kagan. You see it in um, Middle Eastern mythology as Nasrudin. And then you have Loki from Norse mythology. And the list, I mean, the list goes on. They're, I was say, they're don't even the... the, the um... Uh, Native American, the Lakota people, is it the uh, Hayoka or the... Exactly. Uh, yeah, so yeah, there's there's quite a few of them out there, and you're right, it's kind of like one of the... It's almost like the flood myth, right? You find it throughout different parts of the world, throughout history, it's kind of just like this archetype. Exactly, yeah, you have the flood myth in the Epic of Gilgamesh, and then it's since become one of, you know, the most iconic stories in, in the Bible, so... There are definitely these motifs and themes and characters that reoccur throughout time and distance. And that's really interesting to me. And that, that was kind of the angle that I wanted to look at uh, DMT jesters from. And so I started to look into what are the characteristics of jesters and tricksters. And generally in myths and cultures, jesters are there to lift up people's spirits. They're, they're there to play pranks. They generate laughter and happiness and they also like reverse the order of things. They kind of play with people's expectations. Um, so there's a lot of like comedy in what they do. There's a lot of like breaking society's rules and um, kind of what you think is acceptable. And even in, in history, there were always these times like during Lent in, in medieval Europe, um, there were certain festivals like called uh, the Feast of Fools. That was a particular time that people were kind of allowed to let loose before Lent when you had to fast and this was like a particular time when you're kind of allowed to be silly and get drunk and dance and sing and play jokes and so that kind of that seems like a human need to me like the human need to have that kind of aspect of life and and we see it in as I say like in all these stories this is the trickster or the jester reoccurring and I think that's a reflection of that need and to tie that into the DMT experience, I think the reason people see jesters and tricksters so often is because of that human need. It's like mm -hmm. the entities are showing you what you need, like what you need to become or an aspect of yourself that you should try and integrate. I think that's why the jesters are so common. It's like um, life could be so much more fun if you were just a bit more like this, a bit more playful, a bit more jokey, a bit less serious. Right. Yeah. I think, um, I think you hit it on there, but I, I also think that, um, I don't know. I wonder about the gesture archetype or the trickster is if it's almost like, you know, you mentioned, I think like subconscious and, this is something we've talked a lot about on the show. Is it something external or is it something internal that's manifesting itself through this experience to try and get some message through to yourself? Cause maybe, mm. you know, you're so stuck in day-to-day -day consciousness or your, your mind knows itself somehow in that way where this is the way it's going to get through. Um, I find that aspect of it most interesting to me is that, is it ourselves or is it external? Because if it is external, I mean, that has a lot of implications for, you know, you could go throughout history and a lot of things would make sense, right? You know, gods and demigods and, um, 
as you mentioned, a lot of the archetypal stuff. I mean, for me, when I've had psychedelic experiences with entities, it feels external. Um, but at the same time, it's not something where, um, you feel like you're having a conversation or, you know, you could reach out and touch whatever it is, if that makes sense. It's almost like a hologram, uh, in a way. Mm. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, do you have any experience with these like firsthand or is this just something that you're interested in? First had experience with entities, you mean? Or like psychedelic, psychedelic entities, or is this, you know, like I know you're writing about, you don't have to say if you don't want to, uh, obviously. I mean, I know there's yeah. a lot of people that, you know, it's kind of a taboo thing, but yeah, I mean, I was just curious sure. if, if you have had any of these experiences or is this just something that interests you that you write about? I mean, it's, it's both. Um, okay. I, I wanted to write the article because of just how many, how prevalent the jester archetype was in sure in my experiences um and yeah th those experiences were just really profound and meaningful and it kind of influenced a lot of the drawings i did because I'm, I'm quite into art as well so i would often like draw okay not without not not really thinking about it but drawing jester type entities so they were definitely an aspect of the experience that was you know it left like a strong impression on me sure um so my feeling about them is probably is what's reflected in the article. I do think they're an aspect of myself, which is um, showing up in the experience. Um, I guess you could call it a, a projection in some way or something like that. Um, and that's not in any way to diminish the meaning of right. the jesters or how profound the experience is. Um, I think they're like profoundly important experiences in terms of you know, trying to integrate the the kind of meaning of these archetypes. Um, and yeah, I guess I've wrestled with the question of, you know, could they be external? Could they be independent of my mind? And um, it's definitely a possibility. Like I'm not closed off to that, that being possible. I mean, it could, it could be a human tendency to perceive jesters and these archetypes could also be actual you know, discarnate external entities. Sure. But I think it would have to pass a certain test to prove that it was an external entity. And one of those could be, um, do these entities say, say anything to you? Do they deliver any message that you couldn't have otherwise got from yourself? And I haven't yet seen an example of a message that an entity has relayed to someone that they couldn't have known otherwise. So, right. I mean, yeah, it's not like a psychic, yeah. right? Telling you about somebody that you knew that passed away that has some special message or something that they yeah. would only know. It's not like that. Uh, I get what you're saying. Uh, but in, in, in one sense though, there's like some sort of like transcendent wisdom that does get passed down to some people, mm. uh, from talking to all the people we have on the podcast, scientists, experiencers, people that just do it recreationally. Um, it seems like obviously ayahuasca, you can work with it. There's more of an interaction there, um, and smoking it or whatever, injecting it's more of just complete blast off. And, um, it seems like it's very hard. You experience things, you get messages, but it's very hard to, you know, be in it for a long time. But that's why I think those, they're doing those DMTX experiments and the extended yeah. state experiments. And I think that if something can be taken from that uh we'll figure out kind of what you're saying is there some sort of message is this some sort of random thing that's happening uh, i think it's weird though if it is random that people see this specific thing that gives them this random message i actually you know i i, I equated it to like um you're on the internet you're searching and you hit like a wrong page and it brings up like the gear or like you know on on youtube sometimes it's like a, a little monkey holding a wrench you know over its shoulder yeah. something like that it's like playing you know it's like you've reached the 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 edge of reality or whatever and you know we're working on it kind of a thing that's kind of how mm -hmm. i've perceived it sometimes from what people uh have described but Again, just my own experiences with entities and high dose, you know, psychedelics has been 
it again it does feel like a hologram in a way it feels like it's there but it's not like a solid physical thing um but yeah i don't mm. know it's it's very bizarre uh but i recommend everybody go read your article on it because i thought you you know you I, what i like is you're it you're able to entertain these ideas without going full full in on them if that makes sense you know sure uh what is it aristotle said it's the, the mark of uh intelligence to be able to entertain an idea without fully believing it or something along those lines. So, uh, that's kind of my, my philosophy on these kinds of things too. Mm. Like, let's talk about it, let's entertain it, but we don't always have to believe everything. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely agree with that. And, um, I'm definitely not against speculation. I think one of the great things about psychedelics is that they make you, they open you up to so much speculation, but as you say, you don't want to kind of, be so open-minded that your brain falls out, <laughs> as the saying goes. Um, right. You want to be able to ent- entertain ideas without jumping on the first one that sounds the most fantastical and kind of fun to believe in. And it is fun. I mean, when I first heard about these entities, we, Maurice and I had like, you know, 20 years of psychedelic experiences, but we never experienced DMT. So it's like, I mean, we kind of knew about it. We, you know, grew up around you know, hippie culture and jam bands and stuff like that. So we're aware of what it is and everything, but it just, in terms of uh, when we first uh, read those reports and people blogging about it and writing articles and all this stuff, it just really kind of piqued my interest. Number one, we do all have dimethyltryptamine produced in our bodies. Um, And two, um, we're into weird things. So I thought that was just a bizarre thing that nobody can explain. And I like things like that because I feel like that's, you know, that's the edge of science right there. You know, that's the next step of whatever we're going to figure out, whether it's the mind or consciousness or whatever. So. Well, yeah, it also makes you kind of wonder what do we already know? Because we've had, we've heard these reports of people uh, going into comas and then waking up and learning how to like speak a different language and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. maybe some of these, maybe we do know all and we just need to unlock these certain different things within us. And maybe these, uh, these substances can help us unlock those, those, that knowledge that we already possess. Yeah. I mean, that, that would kind of be my, my feeling about it at the moment that, uh, these psychedelics do reduce barriers between the unconscious and conscious and the unconscious contains like just a wellspring of wisdom and and teachings and I think and I, I think that's psychedelics they kind of just break down that barrier and it opens us up to things that we don't think about and probably we can't think about because if we thought about everything at once it would be just too overwhelming so mm. there has to be some there has to be some barrier Mm -hmm. well that's the other aspect of it too it's almost like i mean psychedelics in general but anything like a concentrated salvia or concentrated dmt it seems to just remove the pareidolia that's been built into our um, evolutionary brains and minds and then we're seeing kind of everything at once and maybe that's the overwhelming aspect of it right so i think that that's where a lot of people get the idea that maybe they are external because if you're able to remove these filters that we have built into ourselves or our minds that maybe there is other things beyond that and i think that you know that's where a lot of people i think get that idea and it's not that crazy of an idea and i think that like i said it'll be interesting to see what science does because even though a lot of people that believe a lot of those things don't want to talk about science or it's like i you know they can't verify or negate my experience at the same time i think it is important to try and understand as much as we can so yeah definitely and i think um so from i guess a scientific perspective i find the evolutionary perspective on entities really interesting um i was reading this paper by a researcher called michael winkleman he used to teach um human evolution at arizona state university he's so he wrote a paper in 2018 trying to look at entities from this kind of evolutionary angle. And he talked about kind of the common cognitive mechanisms that humans have that make them kind of primed to either see or believe in entities. So some of these mechanisms are like uh, agency detection, which is the human bias to detect agents or agency in the natural world or natural events when there aren't any. And so something like that is because um, if you fail, 
if you didn't have that bias, you would be less likely to survive. So the cost of um, the cost of believing that as agents when there aren't any is small compared to the cost of not believing there's agents mm. when, you know, one time out of a thousand, there could be a lion behind a bush. Um, and if you don't mistake it every time for a lion, you know, you're less likely to survive than someone who, you know, uh, you know, just thinks it's a twig breaking in the bush. Yeah. It's almost like so, Pascal's wager, but with nature instead of God. That's it. That's it. Exactly. Yeah. Pascal's wager. And so there's that. And then there's, we have biases like anthropomorphism. We have a tendency to project human characteristics onto like patterns and, uh, the natural world. Um, we have a tendency to read like call, I think it's called mind reading or theory of mind. So mm. we try to kind of gauge the intentions and desires and goals of other people, but we end up projecting that into everything because again, it's like Pascal's wager. You're more likely to survive if you do that incorrectly than if you don't. And the cost of doing it incorrectly isn't that big compared to the cost of, you know, not knowing whether a human is being deceptive towards you or not. And, that kind of stuff so yeah there are these there are these kind of biases that kind of make us prone to detect entities or kind of agents when there aren't in fact any yeah and i mean think i think you hit it on the head too with our we've built in pareidolia like we're designed to pick up patterns or put things together i mean if anybody's sitting outside looking up at the clouds on a beautiful day you're going to try and like, what does that cloud look like? You know, oh, it looks like a dog or it looks like a person mm-hmm. or, you know, whatever. So we do that yeah. with everything. And I think that that's the only thing that, you know, when, when we think about all these more esoteric or out there ideas, um, that's the only thing that holds me back a little bit is just knowing that about ourselves because is that happening in those states too? You know what I'm saying? Like, are we... Is that just doing that on a crazy level that we're, we're, you know, like we already do that. So psychedelics just magnifying that times a thousand or whatever the the case may be. Yeah. I mean, that's, um, so that, that researcher Winkleman, that's, that's kind of his position in in this paper. He says, um, psychedelics basically activate these cognitive mechanisms. Um, I, I don't know why. Um, I mean, it feels like incredibly meaningful when these experiences happen, um, but he, he thinks, um, the entities are basically an activation of, of these kind of inbuilt, um, tendencies we have. Yeah. And like, look, I'm, you know, on this podcast, I think over the years we've really changed our opinions. We've gone from the craziest of the woo stuff, um, to, actually doing research and reading books and cross-referencing and talking to different people and having more personal experience. And I think that, you know, when we say these things, I think people want to hear the craziest thing, right? Like that's the most lucrative thing is for us to just sit here and say, Oh, they're external and they're giving us these messages. And, but that's not Mm -hmm. truth. And that's not my truth. I know that's not Maurice's truth. I'm sure that's not your truth. So, um, the truth isn't as always as sexy sometimes, right? It's, uh, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a tough road. It's a lonely road. And I think that stuff like this, I want the truth. So I'm going to be as honest with myself as possible. And I don't know, um, lately I've been posting things on like Twitter, like just be honest with yourself. Like, why do you believe things that you believe things like that? And I think people would agree with that to a certain extent, but we all do that. We all tell ourselves these lies or trick ourselves, you know? So that's why when we talk about tricksters, we're already doing that to ourselves in day-to-day consciousness to a certain level. Right. Mm, So um, for that to come out in the psychedelic experience, again, I'm not saying these things couldn't be external or they're not something weirder or esoteric or deeper. I'm just saying that for me, I like to, I like to, entertain all ideas like we were talking about the aristotle quote i like to you know i don't have to believe something to at least bring it into the mix and weigh it against everything Mm -hmm. else so yeah and i guess i would like to say that even like i mean you can apply these perspectives the scientific perspective and you can be as skeptical as you like but that for me that doesn't change how incredibly insane like a dmt breakthrough (laughs) experience is like Uh, I mean, and also these perspectives don't fully explain the experience. Like I can know about 
you know, these human biases to, de to detect agents. And that makes me like, that makes me prone to see spirits and entities, but that doesn't fully experience the meaning of the experience. Uh, it, it doesn't, um, it doesn't explain just so many aspects of it. And so that, I mean, that, that level is kind of just one level amongst many. I mean, there's psychological aspects, there's philosophical, there's, um, you can take a therapeutic aspect, like how can I apply this to my life, like to mm. actually improve things. So it's just one, one angle amongst many, I think. Well, and you bring up something interesting there because it's like uh, we've talked about my OCD on the podcast a million times and the use, my use of psilocybin to kind of reset myself occasionally and allow myself to take on, you know, CBT therapy or things like that. Um, when you look at what you just said, though, I think for me, it's when I see people posting about all this psychedelic therapy and all this stuff. <clears throat> Obviously, we like it. We like to see all, all these different options out on the table. But at the same time, it's like the way that they're talking about it scientifically does not align with my personal experience, which would be the mystical experience was the thing that helped me. It wasn't necessarily just the compounds because I've taken derivatives and isolated compounds of certain uh, psychoactive compounds that are found nat naturally within plants and fungi and things. And it's not yeah. the same. I'm not saying that you need the whole thing but i think for instance like a, a, a you know a psilocybe mushroom or whatever i think there is like a built-in entourage effect that i don't know if that can be re replaced in a lab by just taking the isolated compound you know psilocybin or psilocin or whatever so mm. um i know that there's an argument over uh 5-meo there's a lot of people that swear by bufo you know the the toad um uh, extractions, but then there, you know, you have that episode with Hamilton from Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia where he's describing, mm. well, look, I've had these experiences and they're no different than, you know, the synthesized is no different than the, but that's different because I don't think that, you know, mushrooms do have a bunch of other compounds and it just like cannabis can, how much, how many can, uh, cannabinoids are in cannabis or how many different chemicals are in cannabis. So I think that when I look at that stuff, it's interesting to see where the science is going because, um, I think that some of these things are already built in technologies with the experience to trail, you know, and, and I, like I said, I think that for me, the mystical was the thing that helped me. And I don't think that I see enough of that. I see them trying to get away from that, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that's a really good point about this entourage effect that you get from eating like the whole, the whole plant or the whole mushroom. Um, Psilocybin does have a lot of, uh, sorry, psilocybin mushrooms do have a lot of other compounds like baocysteine, which um, I think a lot of people compare it to CBD and cannabis. Like it, it acts synergistically with cannabis, but it actually helps to kind of take the edge off. Right. If that makes sense. So certain um, species that have higher levels of baocysteine might be easier experiences. Um, well, I, I can't remember too much. Yeah, I've about seen that. A, actually a comparison now that you mentioned that to cut you off. But what you're saying is like almost like cannabis. Like I mentioned, like some of these other compounds are like similar to how CBD kind of balances you out with the THC in a way. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And there was one other. I can't think of the. It's like a long name, but there was something they found in certain mushrooms that they feel like is that. Th thing that balances it's like the counterweight that gives you most people that have experienced this type of mushroom with this specific compound it's been like a positive experience and they're trying to figure out like mm. why that is versus the other experiences yeah that could actually be the one i'm thinking of i think it begins with an a yeah um, yeah that is a root or i don't know arugus arugus something something yeah. like that i, I yeah I, I know what you're talking about i always forget yeah, yeah. that name specifically but We've talked about yeah, it. I've, I've mentioned it in another one, our other episodes, but um, so so. What do you think in terms of um, the whole science versus mysticism? Like, do you think do you think that there is gonna be some sort of you know battle at some point? Because right now it seems like everybody's kind of just like co you know habitating the space. Pretty you know everybody's been na uh, na navigating it pretty easily from what I can understand. And I've asked a lot of people, like, how do you feel about science? How do you feel about the tech? How do you feel about, um, you know, the money aspect? Like, how do you feel about these things? And everybody seems to just be doing their own thing. Do you think at some point, though, 
all this will come to head and there will be some sort of mysticism versus science or science versus money or, you know, mysticism versus tech or something along those lines? Yeah, it's a good question. And I suppose we're already seeing those kind of conflicts. I mean, in some ways, the science has blended the mysticism um, purely because it uses these uh, mysticism questionnaires that are kind of that have been inherited from the 60s. So a lot of the language in these, you know, clinical trials is mystical. You know, they refer to the ineffable, the sacred, um, the noetic, um, like very mystical concepts. But, you know, it, it has been, these are concepts that have been, you know, quantified. And, you know, can you capture the mystical within questionnaires? Um, it's, you know, how do you capture the ineffable in a questionnaire? I don't, I don't really know. How do you rate the ineffable? It seems like a pretty tricky thing to do. But mm. I think there will there will be these um, divergences. And when psilocybin is legalized for therape- therapeutic use, um, you know, if they follow the model of the clinical trials, um, I suppose that's what will be established. But I, I guess like with something like cannabis, it's first legalized, you know, for medical use, and then eventually legalized in a much broader context. And I think when that happens with psilocybin, there'll be all kinds of contexts in which you can take it, you know, there'll definitely be retreats. I mean, there are already um, psilocybin retreats in Jamaica and the Netherlands, and they definitely don't operate, um, like, according to the medical context. I mean, in some ways, they're similar. I know that Rosalind Watts from Imperial College, she works with, uh, uh, I think it's called Synthesis Retreats in the Netherlands, and she does try to bring the Imperial model, or like at least at least um, protocols from that model into the retreat to maximize the, the benefits. But still, I would say those retreat settings um, are pretty different from, from the medical context. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I'm, look, I'm all for people doing whatever they want. Maybe it's because I already have a history with these things dating back to my high school days, but I'm not a fan of the idea of a retreat. I'd rather just sit in darkness. You know, I don't need a bunch of people around me. I'm not saying I would never do it, but it's just not my thing. And I'm not against it. I just, you know, you have to do what works for you. I just think it's interesting that that's how some people are introduced to it and, I remember in high school just being around people that were my friends and thinking like this person's like an alien to me. Who is this person? Why am I even friends with this person? You know what I'm saying? So it's like, I can't even imagine that with a complete stranger. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's such like an intimate experience and I've considered like, you know, would I go to a mushroom retreat or an ayahuasca retreat? And the thing that puts me off the most is, you know, what, you know, what are the other people going to be like? What if I don't, vibe with them what if i don't like the guides and i've already paid for the retreat and i get there right and they're talking to me about you know energy and chakras and i'm just not into it and then that's just gonna just like color the experience in a way that just isn't helpful so I, i'm probably with you on that i would at, at the moment i kind of prefer to take them alone if like if like i'm looking for an experience that is therapeutic and uninterrupted and just the experience I want, then that's probably how I take them. Um, but I mean, I would be open to them at some point, like if the guides, if I'd met the guides beforehand, um, maybe if it was a one-on-one session with a guide or kind of, I read like really good stuff about the retreat, then, you know, maybe I would consider it. Yeah. It's almost like religion in a way. And I can equate that obviously religion to a few different things, but one of them being that, you know, the modern day scientist or shaman is just what the priest is. It's trying to connect you to this thing, but we can all connect to it, you know, and I think that the problem is is the inexperience, right? Is people that don't know what to expect or they don't know what they're doing in terms of dose and dosage and set and setting. And um, I think it's something that if you know what you're doing, you don't need um, that, that aspect of it, that that conduit if you will but i mean it's good to hit depending on what you do because there's obviously ones that you need like a sitter 
or it's super long or given the context. Yeah, they're doing it with a therapist. Right. Well, doing it with the context of the world and the way things are and things like that. But, um, but yeah, with the whole therapist thing, I'm not, like I said, I'm not against it. I just think that again, it's um, my most profound experiences have been me understanding myself and my mind and then sitting in silent darkness on a high dose and processing things about myself and going through almost like memories are even more vivid and more real than my actual memories, if that makes sense too. So it's things like that, that I think that are, you can, you can dial in or aren't able to access that you wouldn't be at one of these retreats where you're, you know, you're, like you said, your experience is being colored by your surroundings and the other people and worries that you wouldn't normally have if you were in the comfort of your own home or an Mm. office or something like that. Exactly. I think it it kind of just depends on your preferences and even like personality type. Like, I don't know, I'm kind of like more introverted. So if I Mm. had to spend like multiple days with people (laughs) and like not have alone time, I don't know, maybe that would like just tire me out and I just wouldn't be up for talking like all the time. I just want to kind of be on my own and right. Yeah, I don't know. I agree um, with that. Yeah, but we're 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 a little more uh, introduced to it. You know, if you if you have someone that's never done it before, it might be more uh, appealing if they can go in with a therapist and stuff like that. Well, that's oh, what I'm uh, saying. Yeah. I I think yeah. it comes down to experience, is as what I was saying. Like, if you have that experience, you can. You don't need the shaman or the priest or the conduit or whatever this intermediary is. You can just access it you know and, and have right. a good experience but what you're saying is true i mean like look you know the first time you do it you don't want to be alone that's for sure um mm-hmm. you want knowledgeable people around you um so again i think that first time or first few times or things like that you know maybe it's not a bad idea but having knowledgeable friends is just just as is good in that sense but Uh, Let's pivot a little bit. I do want to talk about your article that you wrote about Food of the Gods and Terrence McKenna's uh, stoned ape theory. Um, So in the article, again, it's one of those ones where you wrote where you entertain the idea, you thought there's interesting aspects of it. However, you're not all in on it. And there's other people that do back it up. I mean, Paul Stamets is, you know, pretty knowledgeable when it comes to mushrooms, and he kind of endorses the let's call it a hypothesis because that's what it is. Yeah. Um, but yeah, what was your thinking on that? And uh, where do you stand? You know, is it, do you still feel that way after writing the article or how do you feel about it? Mm. Yeah. So the article I wrote back in 2013, so eight years ago. Right. And that's I did cool. have a look at it. I had a look at it again and yeah, I think there were good points. I would probably write it in a different way. It's kind of interesting to look back on my writing in the past. Like, I think I wouldn't be so... Like, I, I point out a lot that McKenna uses... It's kind of based on speculation. But I feel like in the article, I was maybe a bit dismissive of that fact because there's actually nothing wrong with speculation and most of like most of the most popular ideas in, in evolution are speculation. So there's nothing wrong with it from that point of view. Um, That's a whole different topic, though. That's like talking about science and science communicators and scientism and why we feel ashamed to even speculate, right? So, but yeah, yeah, I I agree about looking back at things for sure. But so, Hmm. um, so where do you stand now, though? Do 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 you think that there's something to it in general or do you think that... Um, it's just maybe a piece of the puzzle or something like that. Yeah, so I still, in the article, I do say the scenario that McKenna's describing is possible and perhaps even plausible. Um, but it really depends on the kind of... So I, I should go back and I should kind of talk about the key points that McKenna raises in sure. kind of explain, explaining it. So. So the reason McKenna came up with it is because there's this massive mystery in evolution, which is how did the brain size double from 1.8 million years ago from the emergence of Homo erectus to modern day humans about 200,000 years ago? And it's something that 
is like really unusual. Um, I mean, over a million years may sound like a long time, but in, in evolution, it's a pretty short time and especially very short for the for a brain size of any animal to double in size. Mm. So there are there's a lot of like competing theories from from scientists like to try and describe this. Uh, people point to the cooking of food. People point to the making and using of tools. People say the demands for complex social relationships explains this doubling. New hunting uh, techniques, I think, is one of them. Hunt, hunting, um, eating omega three fatty acids from fish. Um, so that's kind of more a diet dietary explanation, and I guess McKenna's is sort of a dietary explanation, except the the thing that is being consumed is you know a psychedelic, mm. and so he thought the consumption of psilocybin mushrooms on the African savanna was responsible or could be responsible for this doubling, and it would also be responsible for many other kind of distinctly human traits. So he pointed to religion, art, and language as three other traits that he thought the consumption of magic mushrooms could have um, engendered. So it's, I mean, I, when I read it, when I read Food of the Gods, which came out in, in 92, I was, I loved the explanation. And it became one of these like favorite theories amongst kind of psychonauts and, you know, psychedelic enthusiasts. Um, but I guess I was a bit skeptical. So I tried to find criticisms of the theory or um, hypothesis. And I came across an article called, I think it was called Concerning Terence McKenna's Stoned Apes, written by uh, Brian Akers. Um, so Akers is a, a writer and a researcher. Um, he actually... Um, just to give a bit of background about him, he, he wrote a paper in 2011 um, about these mushrooms that were depicted on a cave, a cave wall in Spain. It's kind of like... Yes, yeah, so a row, Pasca, a row of... um, what's it? I have the, the images, my backdrop on here. It's Selva Pascuala oh, nice. or something like that, I think is the cave art, where it's got all the little psilocybe um, hmm. uh, Mexicana, or not psilocybe Mexicana, let me pull it up. I think it's supposed to be Hispanica. Hispanica, yeah, that's it. Yeah. So he actually, that's that's the earliest sign we have of psychedelic use in Europe. So um, that was a pretty important paper. So that's kind of the work he's doing. He's like very interested in, in mushrooms. And so the, the article he wrote on McKenna's stoned ape hypothesis was it was pretty critical. And that's that's where I got a lot of the information about um, the studies that McKenna was referring to when he was trying to support his hypothesis. And that's where I got a lot of the, the kind of critiques from. So uh, one of McKenna's key claims is that uh, eating magic mushrooms would have benefited our ancestors because in low doses, it increases something called visual acuity or mm -hmm. edge detection. And McKenna derived this uh this idea from a 1970 paper by two scientists in which they gave participants psilocybin and then they got them to look at um these lines that were next to each other and the lines were kind of a bit skewed but they would turn and then at some point they would become parallel so they tested people on psilocybin and people sober and they wanted to see who could detect first when the lines become parallel um, but according to um, Akers, who wrote this critique, uh, this was not a test for visual acuity. And the researchers didn't find that people who ate psilocybin um, were any better at kind of seeing stuff in the distance, which is, is, what, which is what visual acuity is. Um, mm -hmm. And actually, they wrote, these two scientists, they wrote a later paper in 73, where one of the authors actually said that I think this is a quote he said psilocybin may not be conducive to the survival of an organism so this was a later study with psilocybin and he found the perceptual changes weren't actually beneficial for survival um so that's one of mckenna's key claims and he also claims that uh these two scientists gave 
participants low doses of psilocybin, uh, but they actually gave them medium doses. So um, the idea that low dose will help with visual acuity hasn't yet been established from what I know. Um, although I'm sure a test could be done. That would actually be quite interesting to see, like, if you gave people psilocybin, one group psilocybin, another group um, placebo, and you got them to see, like, um, you know, when you go to an optician, they test, like, how clearly can you see sure. these letters in the, in the distance? It would be interesting to see, you know, if the psilocybin people would perform, you know, better on the drug compared to, compared to not. What I would say is you're obviously more aware of patterns in general and things moving um, is, you know, I'm sure, you know, if you've had that experience, everything flows, right? So like, if you look at like a carpet, the pattern's going to flow. If you look at, you know, the wall, you know, maybe you'll see more of that popcorn pop out at you. So I think it does enhance something. I can't say whether that's visual acuity or not, but it does make you, I think, more aware, if that makes sense, um, of your your visual space and maybe things that, like patterns and things you wouldn't have recognized before, so. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I've definitely, I've experienced that. And I think most people like who have tried psychedelics, they'll say, you know, the edges are extremely clear and defined. Um, whether that actually translates into like a placebo controlled study, we don't yet know. Right. I mean, it, it definitely could, and I'm open to that. And then if a low dose does increase visual acuity, that would, that would add a bit more, um, support for McKenna's hypothesis. Sure. Mm-hmm. I think my personal take on it, and I, we can keep talking about all the other aspects if you want. Yeah. Um, and I think he even pointed to what he uses that image from that cave in Algeria, which is the oldest, the one you mentioned in Spain, Selva, um, is I think the second oldest, the oldest one is actually from Algeria. I think it's like 9,000 years old or something like that. Mm. Um, and it's a shaman with like a bee face holding, you know, mushrooms in each hand. Um, but so in terms of where I think he missed the mark is, if you want to talk about like the physical mechanisms behind evolution, that's interesting, I guess, you know, like if that being the cause, but I think mm-hmm. something that you he could have gone to that's far more, I think it's even more interesting and maybe even a lower hanging fruit is this idea of like metaphysics and where did metaphysics come from? Because I don't know about you, but walking around in day-to-day consciousness, I don't see any gods. I don't see any mystical metaphysical beings. I don't really ponder life too much you know but psychedelics definitely bring that out so it's like i could see somebody maybe in prehistoric times or early you know civilization times ingesting some sort of entheogen and then starting to speculate well what is this you know there's got to be more going on here Mm. than meets the eye so for me it's like the stoned ape hypothesis could be real if you just more applied it to the mind and philosophy of the mind. And like, if you look at like religions and belief in metaphysical things and things beyond the scope of uh, reality. And, and even looking at that, it's like that could be some sort of evolutionary mechanism itself, like religion or belief in a higher power or whatever. Cause it's pushing you to like work mm-hmm. towards something, right? You got to find out, you got to traverse the stars. You've got to, you know, so I find that more fascinating. And I think that if you would have maybe went in that direction, there would have been maybe less pushback. But I mean, when you get into the hard sciences and biology and anthropology and, um, uh, you know, some of the more, um, ways that we analyze ancient people, then I think it gets a little bit more dicey because there's really not a ton of answers and it's hard to even test that. So, Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's a really good point to bring up. I think, so McKenna did refer to the origins of religion as, as occurring as, um, as psychedelics leading to the origins of religion. And I mean, if our, if our hominid ancestors did consume magic mushrooms at a high enough dose, I think, you know, they have pretty much the same brains. They're going to have, they could easily have a mystical experience and they have no knowledge of anything else we have. And I think if you experience the divine with, with that kind of background, um, 
I think you're just going to believe it's in, in a divine other. Like, I don't really see how they would come to any other conclusion than to believe that this kind of presence or force that they experience would be anything except, you know, this presence or force. And then they would, and everything is based on their immediate experience. So I don't see how they would um, interpret it in any other way. Right. Yeah, actually, I wrote a blog, kind of a similar thing about seeing UFOs and things, weird things in the sky and equating it to like the Greek gods, how they were more real than real to the people living there. But we know now, you know, where are these gods? You know, they were just assigning, you know, I think Thales came along and kind of broke that. But for a while, you know, back in the days of Homer, people thought like, you know, Poseidon controlled the sea and Zeus controlled the sky. You know, like there was different uh, elements there that were assigned to these gods. And I think that um, when you look at uh, psychedelics, I think that it magnifies something in us to like want to believe it's this mystical weird thing that happens that pushes us, you know, like we're dangling this carrot in front of ourselves. If it happens to just be us, you know, if there's some external thing, like I said, I think that there's greater implications. That's why we should keep looking into these things. But, um, I mean, I, I don't know. What do you think? I'm, Cause I look at like the Eleusinian mysteries. I look at Plato and Euclid and Pythagoras mm. and like all these great minds. They all participated in this thing and they, you know, like was the first, uh, you know, did Euclid come up with all these geometric ideas from that experience, being able to see all these fractals and, you, you know, being able to visualize mm. something that's not visual or Plato, you know, the, the allegory of the cave, there's that Platonian, uh, cave in uh, Eleusis, you know, did he walk over there and have this like weird thought experiment? You know, I th so I think about things like that and I'm not saying that those mm. happen for sure, but it is interesting to think about. And I think that the metaphysic aspects of it, I don't know if you think about that, but I just think that psychedelics were probably, or altered states in general, I guess it could be like lucid dreams or uh, meditation or whatever, but just that's where the idea of metaphysics came from. Cause I don't see that coming to coming into the spectrum in day-to-day -day consciousness i don't know what you think about that yeah that's that's really fascinating i'd never even thought like whether pythagoras and his whole his um you know geometric shapes and everything might have been influenced by his you know taking part in the eleusinian mysteries that's that's a pretty interesting take um but yeah, Plato's cave allegory, that has always seemed a kind of psychedelic idea. You know, are we perceiving the shadows or are we perceiving reality behind the shadows? Um, and that would also be interesting to kind of think about whether that was influenced by him taking part in these Eleusinian mysteries. Um, yeah, I mean, he spoke about this. it. He referenced yeah. it. So, I mean, we definitely, Socrates, you know, they're, it's definitely referenced. So, um but what do you think? I mean, you've had the experiences, you've written about this. Do you think that that's a possibility or do you think that, again, it's like the stoned ape where maybe it was a bunch of things coming together? Well, I definitely think that if you take psychedelics, they can make you question fundamentally what you think reality is. So, and that's what metaphysics relates to, you know, what is, um, the fundamental substance you know is there a duality or is it just one substance um like psychedelics definitely do bring up those questions and there was a paper um i think it was published this year or maybe last year from the philosopher derek anderson and the psychologist david uh Yadin. they looked at what philosophers believe and certain experiences they've had and the philosophers who've had past experience with psychedelics and cannabis they were more likely to believe in idealism so the idea that reality is composed of um, ideas not material things um, right. so there is good evidence that psychedelics make you think about metaphysics differently or at least there's that correlation so um and it doesn't it doesn't yeah Sorry. And I was just going to say, and I know the materialists and the dog, the dogmatic scientists will say, obviously, that all this is just a product of our brain. You know, our minds are a product of our brain, and we'll find that out in the future. There's no reason to 
get into all the woo-woo aspects of it, but what if they're wrong? What if the brain is some sort of, like, receiver, you know, of vibration and energy, and, you know, there's no way to figure that out because we don't know we can't crack the hard problem of consciousness even when they do those uh fmri studies and stuff there's like weird wacky things like there's one from duke where they put people through a bunch of functions and under the fmri and they came back and did the same thing and all the brain functions that they used for the one thing were completely different you know different parts of the Mm. brain when they came back and redid that so it's like what's going on wow yeah we may never know that's right yeah so i mean there's just a lot of stuff that um, you can look at and, and look, there's a reason why we do our show. You know, we look at the mysteries of life and some of them, you know, I feel like there's definitely some weird stuff out there to entertain, but then there's also things that can be explained. As you mentioned, you know, there's people doing actual science and not necessarily debunking it, but coming up with good evidence why this might be the case or that might be the case. Um, and I, I, one thing I will point out from being in this like alternative metaphysical community and entertaining some of these metaphysical ideas, one pet peeve is when, and we used to do this too, so I'm not exempt from this. You know, this is something I've worked on with my own biases, but using science uh, to benefit you in your argument when it's something, you know, weird or mystical, but then being against the science that says something to the opposite of what you want it to say. Mm. Right. So it's like using science when it's convenient and not using it, uh, and leave, omitting it when it's, you know, not. So that's yeah. one thing that, that bugs me that I learned about myself that I used to do. So, um, but yeah, it's just being honest with ourselves. Yeah. I, I can relate to that a lot. Um, I guess there's something kind of almost satisfying at, at, at satisfying with being this kind of, or wanting to be this kind of skeptical scientific guy. And I do try and like be conscious of, you know, confirmation bias, like you were talking about, like only looking at what supports you and not what goes against. So right. yeah, it's, it's important to have an open mind and not kind of just treat everything with extreme skepticism, like dismissing everything immediately as woo woo, because we just don't know, like right. there's so much mystery. And um, like Maurice was saying, it could always be mystery. We might never know certain things and it is difficult to kind of accept mystery and that it might be permanent because we want, we want answers. It's like much more comforting to have a solid answer or argument and then just forget about the the debate. But there might be certain questions um, like metaphysical questions, which there may never be an answer. It might always just be, well, it seems more likely than it seems more likely it's this than this, um, or there's good arguments for and against, but there may never be a point at which we're like, yeah, the metaphysics is completely solved. Um, there's no hard problem of consciousness. We know that it's materialism, panpsychism, panpsychism is never going to work. Like, I think these are questions that we're always going to have to deal with. Hmm. Yeah. I, I definitely agree with that. I don't look, this is, I keep saying that science is like Sisyphus pu- pushing the boulder up the side of the mountain. You know, like I don't, I don't think this is ever going to get settled. And I hate when somebody writes a book or a scientist like writes a book like 30 years ago and they're still like avidly defending it, even though the science has come out against, you know, that theory or hypothesis or whatever. So I'm against that and all, you know, I'm against that within the woo community when people are so dogmatic, they won't even look at science that, produces you know an experiment that shows that this is capable or not capable or you know whatever and i i hate when i see it from scientists too that are like oh you know we have to just isolate this compound from the psychedelics because that'll help people that's the thing that's helping people well you know are you discounting the mind which you don't fully understand and Mm. may not ever you know understand and i i i don't know how you feel about this though but to the consciousness aspect and the hard problem of consciousness I don't think we'll ever figure we will ever figure it out because I don't think unless we're able to get outside of ourselves mm. and our consciousness to crack that. Do you know what I'm saying? Like it's one thing to look at like a dog or a cat and try and analyze them and figure out what's going on. And we still don't really understand fully other than instinctual stuff. Um, but then it's a completely another, you know, another thing if you look at our impact on the world and even our place in the universe, to 
the only time people get great perspectives or something original or an original thought is when they do psychedelics or they do lucid dream or they do meditate or whatever. So I don't think there will ever be a time where science is going to be able to say, this is exactly what's happening. You don't have to think about this anymore because this is how it works and that's it. I don't think that'll ever happen. And I don't think AI will ever be able to make human beings. I mean, we're flawed too. So even if they make something that's somewhat sentient, it's not going to have the same flaws or, um, you know, properties of the mind that we have now. So I don't know. How do you think about that kind of stuff? Yeah, those are really big questions and just extremely tricky to kind of, I don't know, try and tease apart like what, like, where is my thinking biased and where is it kind of being balanced? It's like really hard to know where I'm kind of injecting my biases into these kind of topics. Um, but with the AI thing, I would I would agree because whatever machine we create hasn't hasn't like the human body evolved over millions of years and it's not embodied like we are and it doesn't have these flaws that you, you point out right. so yeah I, I mean ai trying to create a human clone using ai it does depend on a certain assumption which is kind of like the computational theory of mind hmm. so we can do it if the human mind is does work like a computer but again, that's something we don't don't really know, and I think you can definitely question you can definitely question that assumption. Um, I don't think the human mind does operate like any computer we know, so I'm not really sure about that argument. Um, yeah, that's kind of just my take just, on it. Yeah, I just think it's weird though. Like we're able to work on other human beings. There's people that you know they'll you know, take their brain out of their head after they're dead and they'll look at it and study it. We have scientists trying to figure out, you know, what's going on. But like I said, I think there's something about being able to get outside of yourself or your consciousness. We can't do, we can't put ourselves in other people's consciousness and we can't take ourselves out of our own consciousness. The closest we can get is like altered states. So I think that that's the big thing. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know. That's just my take. And I don't think that, science is as close to creating an AI that's again, you can create something that's maybe past the, even the Turing test, but to have those human like properties or qualities is a completely different story in my opinion. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a really good point about not being able to see consciousness from an outside point of view. Um, I mean, that is always going to be impossible. Um, it would be like trying to look at your own eyes with your eyes. You just right. can't, you just can't do it like the the thing you're looking at you're looking at it through the thing you want to look at so there's always going to be this this barrier you can never be an objective observer um but like you say with psychedelics you can at least alter your perspective so you can't i mean some people might say you can go outside your consciousness but at least from my thinking with psychedelics, you can at least get a different angle or vantage point, which can be mm. um, really useful, at least for better understanding consciousness. For sure. Yeah. Well, let's wrap it up here. We're going to do a short Patreon segment with you, um, but this has been super fun. I would do want to get you back on in the future. And uh, yeah, absolutely. There's a million things we could talk about. I just felt like that was a good intro um, mm. given, you know, what I've read of your work so far and, uh, the topics that we're both interested in and everything like that. So, but uh, everybody go check out Sam's uh, website at samwolf.com. I have the link all the way down at the bottom if you want to read all of his articles. Uh, is there a play, Is there somewhere you write consistently or is it just kind of sporadic, whatever kind of happens? Uh, I would say just, uh, yeah, on my website, I try and post once a week uh, oh, okay. if I can. That's pretty much where you can find find all my work. Sure. Beautiful. Right, well, go check it out. He's also active on Twitter. Uh, so find him on Twitter. What Do you know your handle on Twitter? Yeah, it's uh, at Sam Wolf. Uh, Wolf is spelled W-O-O-L-F-E. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. So go follow him on there. And uh, yeah, if you are interested, we are about to do the Patreon segment. I will upload it later. So if you're, you want to check that out, head on over to patreon.com slash podcast for just $2 a month. You'll get exclusive guest episodes and segments, which we are about to do. Um, 
there's we have other uh, tiers on there too if you want to check it out. We're also on Discord. Uh, we do have a new merch store that's up. I have some awesome designs. I just created one with Anubis. Um, and what else do we have on there? I created uh, a composite image of the Portara at uh, Naxo, so go check that out. There's some really cool stuff on there. And let's not uh, forget our favorite T-shirt, Let Maury Speak, or hashtag <laughs> Let Maury Speak. Um, so go check that out. I promise I'm not... I'm not making him not speak. He speaks as much as he wants to, but uh, sometimes the guy just doesn't have much to say. What can I say? Uh, head on over to injuriesweb.org. It is live. This is a social media platform we created to connect open minds. Uh, and one more thing. Again, if you're interested in winning this Mind Escape t-shirt, um, we do have a large and a medium left. So that's something that will fit you and you're interested. You can enter to win this t-shirt. Uh, head on over to... Uh, Apple Podcast, leave us a five-star review and uh, take a screenshot of it. Send it to mindescapepodcast at gmail.com. That will enter you in. Congratulations to Cole, who won last month's T-shirt. And uh, we had a runner-up of Abner. So thank you so much for your support. Again, thank you for everybody for the kind messages. And shout-out to Sandy. Uh, and uh, shout-out to Ryan. Shout-out to everybody that was uh, in the live stream today. Uh, we love everybody. Stay safe out there, and uh, we'll catch you next time. Peace. Peace. See ya.